Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Welcome to Rebel Yell, a new series from Art Laws that features young emerging artists who are changing the face of our cultural landscape. Vera Mulyani is considered the world's first Mars architect. She is the founder and CEO of Mars City Design, a global innovation platform whose purpose is to research, conceptualize, and design eco-sustainable cities for life on Mars. Mulyani's concept of urbanism on Mars also advocates a self-sustaining lifestyle on Earth. Growing up in poverty in the polluted slums of Jakarta with the trauma of civil war as her brutal reality, Vera relied on her imagination as a means of survival and vital escape. Her persevering dreams of a bigger world and brighter future led her against all odds to Paris, where she enrolled in the Beaux-Arts as an undergraduate and later studied architecture, engineering, and urban design at France's prestigious École d'Architecture de Nantes, where she received her graduate degree. Vera is also a filmmaker and has written and directed three award-winning films, two of which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. She also cast both Emmy Award-winning actress Julia Garner and Oscar winner John Batiste in their first on-screen roles. In addition, Vera has exhibited her paintings and photography in galleries around the world. We welcome Vera Mulyani to Art Laws. Vera, you were considered the world's first Mars architect. Can you define Mars architect and what a Mars architect does? Mars architect is someone that design and vision architecture in a sense of Martian habitat type of architecture on Mars. So it's really a work that includes architects and the knowledge to be within an environment that is extreme and also understand that we are there to thrive not just to survive. You're a real visionary, Vera. And I, I mean, I remember when I first met you, this was about five years ago, Alex, you introduced me, you're Vera's yeah. good friend. And you're thinking out of the box in a way that no one else is. And you have this imagination that you don't censor. And you're actually carving out the space for outer space habitats. So tell us why you want to help humanity go to Mars and live there. What do you envision there? Because I believe we can do it. Because I believe this is the time to make that leap. We went to the moon and we're learning about living in space. So I think the next very natural expansion for humanity, for our next generations, is to reach this next planet that is very potentially similar to what we have today here with an extra effort. That extra effort will definitely take humanity, if not directly to Mars, to a better, hopeful, thriving level of knowledge and hopefully kindness as well. There is this very famous overview effect term that all astronauts suffer in a good way when they go to space looking back to the planet Earth as Carl Sagan famous naming for Earth the pale blue dot. You just are transcended. 
you will come back home with a completely elevated point of view about life and humanity. Because when you are looking back to this pale blue dot, you don't see any borders of countries. You don't see any differences between people. We're sharing the universe together. We're not here to pity one another or criticize or judge. We're just living together in this lifetime, and we are looking forward to adventure, explore the next frontiers. And for me, that is Mars. So is Mars a chance to sort of reset? Is it going to be a different life, a way of sort of moving past the problems that we have here? Yes, not only reset, but reset in a way we suddenly see another vast chapter that reminds us how small and vulnerable we are and how little we know from this unlimited universe. And it makes us become better species, I think. So what would it be like to be there? And how would we be better species there? We're still bringing the human component. Yes. Look what we're doing already. Would we bring over war and gun violence and the technologies that we've designed that are destroying our planet Earth? How do you make it better over there? Exactly. That is the two aspects of humanity that we have, right? I actually have a really incredible mentor, Daisaku Ikeda, who talked about how when we see a knife, a knife could cut food and help you cook. A knife could also sculpt beautiful sculptures, but a knife could also kill people. So it really depends on the decisions that we make as an individual. It will affect our environment and the people around us. This is why it's so important to infuse a completely different direction of hope, showing that, wow, there are some people who can survive the trip to Mars. And not only that, they actually bring the best out of all of us humans to the next chapter of human history. You talk about hope and survival, and I just I want to just take it back for a second. In 2020, you were invited to speak at the Explore Mars conference, along with Elon Musk, which is very cool. The topic of the conference was perseverance, which was the name of the Mars rover, but that was the topic that you were asked to speak upon. And you used this opportunity for the first time to talk about your upbringing in Jakarta. I'm just curious, can you tell us about your early life in Indonesia and why did you need to persevere? It's a very sensitive and endearing subject that I've been keeping all my life. It's almost like I was ashamed to where I'm coming from, how I grew up, and the fate that I had being born in a poor circumstances, although I have a very loving family, and that's what gave me the strength and the belief that everything better could happen. 
I have always had the belief that that circumstances was temporary. But as a kid, you know, you're kind of living dependent on the culture and the environment you grew up with. And I was limited to my nearby school where like every day, all I did was surviving from the kids in the school that would attack me at any time. And why, why do you think they were doing that? Oh, it's just, I think it's just a different culture where guys are so, you know, into attacking girls. And in what ways? Like verbally or literal uh, assault? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literal assault. Yeah. It's a common thing. I like my mom and my brothers would always have to accompany me unless you're in the class where there are teachers. You just don't feel really safe as a girl in mm-hmm. that environment. So coming out from that circumstances where afterwards that, I guess, context became even worse when the civil war happened in Indonesia, in Jakarta, the extreme Muslim event happened mm-hmm. in 1997. And I was still a very young teenager at the time with no hope, with no money, with not enough educational background. I couldn't expect anything from my parents to be able to send me to Singapore, to Australia, completely out of the country. It was a hopeless time. I was even hiding in the closet for like 48 hours that one Mm. day because of the attack. Like they really went to your house and burned your, your house, your neighbors got killed. A kid the same age as me, she died raped by five people who afterwards burned. I mean, it could have been me, basically. That's why I was very, I think it was traumatic. But at the same time, since I was really protected by my family, I just had the luxury to have in my mind all I thought was, let's escape this time to a brighter future. And I just did not see how my future would be. And it's amazing because until today, you know, we're listening to the reality of war mm-hmm. in Ukraine or in anywhere in the world. Any girl, any boy could experience that trauma. However, not everyone could grow believing that their dream, which is complete opposite, heavenly compared to this hell, right? Right. Could actually come true. Well, you once said that you would find your safe place in the stars and the unknown night sky. And it was the only thing that felt kind to you. And it always gave you a yes. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing to hear. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and how you were particularly drawn to Mars at that time. I mean, you said something like, that's where I could see infinite possibilities in that twinkling red planet? Yes. I would run to my rooftop whenever I feel hopeless and just look at the night sky. And I knew somewhere I should belong somewhere and definitely not there where I was. And I think it was also a culture, luckily, that you know teach us to pray not like a blind faith, but really believing that 
a change is possible. But you'd always been very independent. Can you talk about the airport? I would take a bus to go to the Jakarta airport just to look at planes flying in and out because that suited my impossible dream. I just wanted to converse with people who came. You know, at the time, the airport is not like today where it's a mess and people are just taking a plane like it was a bus going from here to Pasadena or something. (laughs) It's more like, you know, for me, it's equivalent to the spaceport today, maybe. Imagine if you see the spaceship arriving from Jupiter or from Mars and you want to see these people arriving from the other planet. That was my Mm -hmm. feeling when I was that kid. I was just like fascinated by all these people who came from somewhere else and I wanted to speak English to them. That's amazing. So you really just had the sense of there's a better life, there's hope, there's something else out there, it sounds like. When I look up to the night sky, I always see the infinite bright light that I just feel like I'm communicating with those stars. And I knew like each moment is so unique, but each moment informed me the way to go to the next. Like I'm inspired. I am listening to, I guess for us, it could be called meditative state where you just listen to your future self knowing that, okay, this is what happened and I believed in it. And so uh, what's interesting with the reality is that sometimes it shows a complete opposite of our dream, our vision. So for example, when that civil war happened and I just saw no future, that was exactly the time when I just started to practice my English in workplace. So I was a young teenager, but I was already working for magazine from London and from Paris. These are magazines that were written by some expatriates that lived in Indonesia at the time, and they were there to document this event as if they knew this was going to happen already. And I was there as a translator learning about this interview, and I transcripted and when I listened to it, I was like, wait a minute, there will be this event happening. And I told my parents and they were like, yeah, well, you're not making sense at all, right? We don't see anything coming up on the news. Well, because it was still under dictatorship. So all the news were censored and we just know that the sky is blue and the grass is green. We had no idea what was going to happen, but I knew it. And luckily the people whom I work for, already had a plan to go to Hong Kong. I was already following my father's path at the time. He liked to paint, he liked to make sculptures. And uh, somehow he taught me how to do photography. And I was like borrowing a camera from my school and I started to do photography. Basically, I started my artwork and the people I worked for those magazines, they moved to Hong Kong and they told me, you know, this is only going to get worse from here. So I think you should stick with us and we can help you stay in Hong Kong, maybe sell your art and see what happens. 
we're gonna try to see if France would have some program for you to learn the language and maybe you could go to Beaux-Arts school. I had no idea what they were talking about at the time. I was just <laughs> like, you know what? Anything is better than this. And I've always dreamt to travel. Yeah. But of course, there was no way I could get the money to do that from my parents. So the translator program at the time was just my only escape. And that's what I did. And I brought my art. And long story short, we did like a solo exhibition in Wan Chai Gallery in Hong Kong, 1997. It got sold out like 25 paintings were all sold that night. And Amazing. I was that's great. <laughs> I was able to come back home and told my parents, you know, I'm gonna have to buy a ticket to go to Paris, like one-way ticket to Paris <laughs> with that money. How did they respond? Because well, I would imagine it's unusual. It's really hard. I think for me to even speak up, like I was terrified. And I remember my parents were just sitting watching TV and they muted the TV to hear me. I was sitting at their back, basically, and they didn't even look at me. I was just telling them that I didn't ask them. I told them that I was going to go. <laughs> and uh, they were just like, okay. And, you know, from there, and how old were you yeah, then? I was like 16 and a half. Wow. But, you know, I think in that culture, it's like you're almost 21. It's almost like you're 20. I remember hearing that your dad told you never to become an artist or you would starve. And how did you respond to that? Yes, I remember that. Um, what's interesting is that he repeated that kind of many times but he still taught me how to paint and you know he still commented on my artworks mm -hmm. but I think the most crucial moment when he repeated that and it kind of engraved in my my mind was when I was learning French and applied for Beaux-Arts school and architecture school and I was accepted for both and so I called my dad and obviously he would prefer me to be an architect he's like there is no way you're going to be an artist <laughs> <laughs> I was like well it's the same it's just that architecture you risk to kill people if you don't learn math <laughs> so that's what I did did your dad want to be an artist? Do you think that's where the resistance came? Well, it sounds like he was, right, Vera? He, he yeah. I, think well, I, mean, he, I mean, a professional yeah. artist. I mean, No, I think he was born with the, the gift, but, you know, too proud maybe to be just working on fun stuff. I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. the, the older mentality where, you know, you better have a job and an income like steady income to feed your family and and a notion of artists completely different in the western countries still you know at the time when you did go to paris and you did start studying for your graduate degree in architecture you were working with some pretty renowned architects jean noel rudy ricciotti and you were influenced by people like zaha hadid i'm just curious what were you learning from all of these architects who were so specific in their styles, what were you gaining mm. from them as a young architect? 
Yeah, I just love the fact that I had that opportunity to learn architecture in France, not anywhere else in the world. Why do you say so emphatically in France? In France, I think what's beautiful is the understanding of conceptual design and also adapting to the surrounding environments. Basically, it's such a spiritual practice for me, how mm -hmm. you feel your surroundings, how you understand their spirit of place and history and culture and the people and the future. How do you connect all that with personality that is not just your personality, but the place so you conserve basically the soul of that place. And it's just not an easy subject to teach to people, I think, but somehow the French school has that way. I believe this is also because of the language. You know, this is why it's deeply very contained of respect and just love to the origin of a place. And that's what I miss when I moved to the U.S. and started working in New York. Everything I learned, by the way, so Jean Nouvel was in one of my mentorship program when we were in early school. And we were designing modular greenhouse system for the favelas in Brazil. Wow so that the communities could feed themselves. I mean, it's such an advanced idea. And today, everybody's like suddenly doing that. And also, especially for space, you know, we're thinking about how to grow food in space. I see your work today as being an extension of his work. It's so funny to sort of see what he accomplished, but you're taking it a next step further. And we can get into that later, but it's interesting that you chose to work with him. Yeah, I just think that that's the beauty of our life, right? When we realize our dream and our gift from the beginning of early life, this is very funny. I actually learned this from my citizenship attorney. <laughs> <laughs> She's one of the best human beings I've encountered in my life because she made me realize every single step you take and learn from will tell your life story and that's why every step is so important so from early on no matter to whom I work with I also know how to say no no I don't want this to be in my life history so therefore I would say no and I would choose the one that makes sense toward the dream I have Mm -hmm. So if, if it doesn't fit, I don't go there. Sometimes, you know, we think, oh, we really have no choice. That's, I think, is uh, an easy exit. I think we always have to stick with the choice we have that is relevant to the big dream we're having. That's just how I, I have functioned from the beginning. So the Jean Nouvel and Rudy Ricciotti, it was such a... A huge accomplishment for me to just be associated and have the experience from these grandmasters of architecture, you know, that is really significantly influencing my just everyday way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your master's thesis and what was its title? 
because yeah. I think that sort of ties into all of this a little bit too. Yes. <laughs> we talked about this with Alex and I realized, wow, this is really what art laws is about as well. It's really <laughs> amazing how this all ties up together. So after working for Rudy Ricciotti in south of France, mm-hmm. and I now want to adventure the big cities because I want to pursue urban design. And I went to New York. So the title of that thesis was F the Rules. You could say it on this channel. It's on this on this show. <laughs> I think it was also the time of rebel. Like I did not want to follow any rules in terms of if I want to create a certain architecture, I would hate it if somebody who knows nothing about architecture tells you, well, your window shouldn't be like that because on the same street, every window is like this. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense sometimes, mm-hmm. but that's what I learned from New York. So I thought that's an appropriate a title, fuck the rules. And <laughs> I think the biggest slap in the face that was actually a gift for the rest of my life, it was this one teacher saying, if you want to F the rules, you have to master it. And that mm. is the key. And I was so blown away. That was probably so disheartening, but that advice probably shaped the next part of your life in so many ways. I'm thinking about in New York, your switch, I don't want to say switch, but you decided to pursue filmmaking and very successfully, I have to say. Interestingly enough, David Lynch played an indirect role in your pursuit of <laughs> filmmaking. <laughs> and this is going to be weird. So I, I want Robin to hear. Can you tell us more about how David Lynch played a role? Yeah, well, anything with David Lynch is weird, right? So <laughs> it's just also weird. So for my thesis, Half of the thesis was reported through a video. So I was basically making a video in New York when I was in Manhattan. I was waking up every morning exactly the same time to stand on the Columbus Circle exactly at the same time every single day, no matter if it was snowing or raining, to take that one picture and make a progressive animation to show how New York at that spot, just as an example, changes dramatically every day. And I kind of loved that practice Mm -hmm. that I started to mess around with storytelling through video making and filmmaking. And so I, I went to film school afterwards. And what's interesting is that the night before my first, first class ever in that film school, I was just so excited, right? I had a dream and in that dream, I was in a living room of a house of David Lynch. It was such a vivid dream. It felt real. Like I could still remember the temperature in that room and the ambient, the smell. And we were like four disciples, let's say four students sitting there waiting for something that's going to happen. But I remember him saying, okay, The first question I have for you guys is to identify what is the unique signature that you could find in all of my movies, because I was like fascinated by his weird stories. 
that I was watching each and every one of them. And then in that dream, I kind of like, okay, I think it's the sound, you know, the sound of this factory and always this very vacuumed environment in an industrial location in Mulholland Drive, in Eraserhead, in almost every film I was playing again and again to watch. And so he said, okay, that's good. Do you know how I make that sound? I was like, oh, no clue. And he said, (laughs) okay, well, why don't you go to the kitchen? And that's when I started to hear the exact same sound of his signature of the movie. And I got up, went to the kitchen, and it was a teapot boiling. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's the teapot sound. And he said, that's right. If you want to have a horse in your movie, you don't have to have a horse. And I woke up and I was just like, wow, do I really need to go to this film school now? I've learned everything. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, so did you leave the film school? No, I went and I learned a little bit more. <laughs> Not that and much still, more, but... And I still never met David Lynch, by the way. <laughs> so you really did kind of F the rules. And did you finish your thesis or did you kind of abandon it and move to film school? I guess you Oh, had- no, no, I finished it. It was such a celebrated... I had like the highest score in, I think, the 10-year history of the school. <laughs> And then that's when I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to make movies now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the freedom in that is so great. And in fact, you didn't just make movies. You made two movies that were screened at the Cannes Film Festival. And one of your films, Ela and the Moon, you've called a visual poem. What inspired you to make this film? What happened was that I had a bet with my headmaster because I couldn't afford the film school, obviously. And he said, if you can get your short film to go to Cannes festivals and put our school name there, then we'll give you a free class for directing. And that's what I did. What's interesting, I was able to apply that story with David Lynch. And most of the elements in the story is like rich of background sound and make it very unique environment. So what inspired me with that particular story is I admire the relationship between father and son for some reason. I believe that this can sound crazy, but world peace could be achieved by having a very peaceful, respectful, and loving father-son relationship. I expressed it by having this 15-minute story, a repetition of the life of the son, exactly the same as the life of the father. The only thing that can stop the cycle of your fate is if you can establish love to your parents. That was my premise, basically. Oh, that's beautiful. What did your own father think about the film? I'm just curious. (laughs) I'm bursting laughing because I remember after showing it to Cannes Film Festivals, instead of going back to New York, I went back to Jakarta thinking that I could show off to my dad, you know, basically by saying, hey, look, you didn't want me to be an artist. And here I am, you know, this is my movie. And so he watched it 
you know, our TV was not great. <laughs> and uh, I was really inspired by Caravaggio painting. So it's mostly very contrasted, dark period piece. My father watched it and I was ready to leave. Basically, he waited until last minute to watch. And then he didn't say anything. He didn't even have any emotion. After that, I was ready. I said, bye. Yeah, see you soon. Oh, I got emotional because I miss him very much. And he passed away about three years after that, I think. But I remember he said, well, it's good, but next time use more lights. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's a different culture. You know, parents don't really praise their kids there. Maybe that was his way of praising though, you know, maybe offering, (laughs) no, just to show that he was engaged. But anyway, but I want to mention that as a film director, you gave Julia Garner and John Batiste their first opportunities in front of the camera, which is amazing. And now she's won multiple Emmys. He's won the Academy Award. What did you see in these two that stood out to you when you casted them? I'm just so curious. That's right. Long story short, I was in an acting school in New York with Julia Garner's sister. Mm -hmm. And I really, really loved how Anna, her name, was very talented and just so passionate and I became friends with her and I have this big goal (laughs) the Eli in the Moon movie and it's a period piece and then it's very rare to find people with the look that it's just like wow they are born to be in your movie that's how I felt when I met her and uh, then I went to her house and there's this sister who has this curly hair, incredibly gold, beautiful hair. And she just looked like she's coming out of this 18th century painting, very different from her sister. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I remember the actor that I picked, Matthew Ballinger. And I was like, I think it will work better in terms of look you know I have a painter eye if we have Julia Garner so at the time she was not at all acting she didn't follow her sister's path I mean it was just like a discovery of the person who is today Julia Garner I mean I'm just so impressed with her journey Mm -hmm. and beautiful pathways and just from that moment I think (laughs) somebody's life has changed, you know, it's pretty incredible. But Jonathan Batiste, that was incredible discovery as well. I was making this second film that also screened in Cannes. It's called The Melody of Choice. And it's a story about a young little boy in the South that is a trash collector. And he does have a dream He wants to be a great musician. And that is somehow it's similar to my childhood story. You know, somebody from very impossible circumstances can achieve their dreams when they also meet someone that inspired them. And in this story, it was John Batiste. I found him because of a good friend who um, told me that, uh, oh, I know this guy who plays at Juilliard and 
at the time I was interviewing him and he said, well, what happened was I was supposed to be at Juilliard, but uh, there is that famous flood in New Orleans, Katrina, Katrina, and then um, (laughs) John Batiste was interviewed by Juilliard School and he couldn't fly to New York, but he called the director and he just put the phone on his piano and he would play the piano when the Hurricane Katrina was entering his house. It's just an incredible scene. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, I would love you to be in my movie. We didn't have the scene of Katrina, but (laughs) (laughs) we we had John Batiste as uh, someone that inspired that little boy to become a musician. It's a great film. I want to jump ahead. You had moved to California specifically to start Mars City Design. Uh, Can you tell us about it and what was your mission? Yeah, so from New York, I was screening the movies in Cannes Film Festivals, and then that's when I met producers who live in California, and that's actually why I moved to California. I was hoping to make the feature version of uh, Eli and the Moon. What's interesting is that California, it's either Hollywood or technology and, and space. And so when I was not doing my film, I kept bumping into people who are in technology. And of course, I have always been fascinated by it. And I I have my engineering background as well. So I was always so curious about that futuristic vision. So when I learned that Elon Musk wanted to send a million people to Mars, by 2100, my heart was rushing saying that, wow, if we're sending that many people, it wouldn't be a base, it would be a city. And this is my chance to contribute to the bigger picture of humanity. This is going to be a real story, not just a movie. And I wanted to do something real like that, could use both my creativity and also technical knowledge and practice. So I had the idea to create this Mars City design competition. So it has been like a crowdsourcing effort, workshops and platforms that is similar to an accelerator, but it's different. We're really just designing. And from that design, there are some patterns coming out and we now start other small child companies. And one of them is actually something that can help us today, the human performance, human health. So what are some of the considerations when you think of designing a city or buildings for Mars? I was just going to say, I've noticed in some of the renderings that you and your colleagues have done, there's interesting, very amorphic shapes and the designs almost look open air and there's a sculptural element and you see these, I'm not even sure what they call them, but there's these sculptural pieces that are within the open air structure. And I'm just curious what those design elements are inspired by and what those mean in relation to Mars. These are all not experimental because it's very advanced in terms of research. These are all possibilities. These are all blueprints that could work 
but it's still adjustable depending on which area on Mars you're going to be living. It's all different climates, different altitudes, but it applies to most of them having the biomimicry, the open air that you see our team basically mention. What if on Mars, it's not about scarcity. It's not about trying to save water, but instead it's going to be an abundant giant water filtering from the rock ice that we mine and melt it and filter it. And it becomes the fountain centerpiece of the hall of, you know, where the station that we welcome astronaut crews that arrive from earth, for example, and that we can drink directly from that water, filtered water. What what I really like is sort of there's this human on Earth application to these designs that are going to be on Mars. And I'm thinking about the group out of Puerto Rico who created that filtration system after the hurricane, and they had absolutely no clean water. And they were designing water filtration, but then the real life sort of set in, and then they were able to use the applications that they were thinking about for Mars for, to help their own city. So it's interesting is that there seems to be this human application that could help both sustainability on this planet and also thinking forward. Yeah, um, it's like you have this innovation platform that is doing research and development about life on Mars and architecture on Mars and building a city. But as Alex is saying, it's, I guess, every idea you come upon can be applied here to the earth as well. Yeah. So that is the ultimate goal, actually. Thinking out of the box to respond to reality problems that we're facing today. We are human. And if we want our life to work, we have to cooperate with our environment. We don't just go there and damage the place. So we don't just go there without considering what was there before. So I'm coming back to the earlier concept that I talked about from the French architecture school, particularly is to respect the environment, to understand what is this location telling us as a story? Oh, there is this crater and this happened at this time. And the quality of the soil was like this. And it's very significant to this area because of this and that and that. So we want to echo that story that environmental identity into the architecture that we're designing. We're right. not just, okay, let's land here and do our best to survive. So who are you working with in the space industry to make this science and design meet? Well, at the moment, we're doing it ourselves. There's no one yet on Mars, so it's an early concept. But this is why I am more and more doing public speaking so that the people who have that power at NASA, at SpaceX, could hear this voice. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked about a philosophy of yours that you were starting to talk about in terms of respecting nature, etc., that there's this symbiotic trust in nature that needs to happen. And once that's violated, can you tell us about that thought? Yes. For me, the earth is like a living being. When we hurt it, when we take so much resources out of it without considering to 
somehow recultivate back, we will have to pay because it will react to compensate the missing piece that we take. Do you sort of see that as a spiritual component? Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because I've always wanted to express this thought and maybe I'm wrong, but it's my personal belief that spiritual practice exists because scientifically we have not found the eloquent way to understand and share the knowledge. So at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six Mm -hmm. questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. You want to try it? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Favorite movie? Being John Malkovich. Favorite painter? Oh, that's tough. Uh, Chagall. Favorite band? Mm, David Lynch. (laughs) 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 Favorite TV show? Frasier. Yes. Best place you've traveled in the past year? Japan. Favorite guilty pleasure? Tiramisu. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Vera. Oh, thanks, Thank you so much. That's it? That's That's it. it. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.